Welcome to the Highland Sermon Podcast, where we share with you the sermons that are preached by the pastors at Highland Community Church in Kokato, Minnesota. If you haven't already, please consider subscribing to the podcast so that you will be notified when new episodes are available. Let's get into this week's message. Well, it was 2001 when Vince McMahon, who owned the WWE professional, uh, professional wrestling circuit, decided that the WWE needed to do something new and something different. And so Vince McMahon led the professional wrestling circuit to begin a new professional football league. It was known as the XFL, and it went about as well as you might expect from the people who brought us pro wrestling. It lasted one season, and it lost $35 million. But the legacy of the XFL, they did one thing that was kind of cool. When the XFL existed, they let the players, instead of putting their name on the back of the jersey, they said, you can put any word, any phrase, anything you want on the back of your jersey. And so Rod Smart from the Las Vegas Outlaws, who's probably the best running back in the league, on the back of his jersey put these three words. He hate me. Why? He wanted his opponents to hate him every time they encountered him in the backfield. But that led me to this question. What if hating was more than just something that occurred on a sports field? What happens when hatred and frustration and anger spills over into the places that are closest to us? What happens when there's hatred and enmity and anger even within the walls of our house and our home? Growing up, When I heard about marriages that were in trouble, I was quickly pointed to one verse, one phrase from Malachi chapter 2. It's the verse we're going to be looking at this morning. The only time my home church practiced church discipline is when a couple who had chosen to divorce were brought before the members of the church so that we could know that their membership was being canceled because they had chosen to get divorced. And we were told that it was really quite simple. God had said, I hate divorce. Those were the three simple, straightforward, easy-to-understand words pulled out of Malachi chapter 2, applied to any and every situation, and we were told, see, see, God hates divorce. It's always bad. But I've been asking the question, is that true? Is it really so straightforward, simple, and settled? Well, our series that we're going through is called That's Not What That Means, so you're probably guessing that there's going to be a little twist. And so I'm going to tell you the twist up front, and then we're going to explain it, and we're going to apply it, and we'll even defend it. And the twist is, the words, I hate divorce, do not actually appear in the text of Scripture. It's a product of misunderstanding the context, which leads us to mistranslating the verses. Here's how the verses are typically translated. This is probably what you grew up hearing. Let me give you two examples of how older English versions translated these. The King James Version translated the verse we're going to be looking at this morning. For the Lord, the God of Israel, saith that he hateth, putting awayeth, uh, for one covereth violence with his garment. Can I get enough ifs in there? But that's the King James Version. Maybe the New American Standard reads a little bit easier. It was updated in 2020, but they kept the same type of translation that they've had for years. Uh, Quote, for I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with violence, says the Lord 
of armies. Here's my bold claim up front. Those versions are wrong. And I want to show you this morning, through looking at the context, why those versions are wrong. Now remember, there's four types of context that we look at when we understand the scriptures. We look at the historical context, what was happening in the culture around the time at which this verse was written. We look at the grammatical context. What were the words and the phrases and the sentences that were being used? And this morning, we're going to go full grammar nerd, and we're going to just show you from the grammar itself, why the translation needs to be different. We're going to look at the near context. What do the surrounding verses and chapters say? And then we're going to look at the canonical context. How does the full Bible help us understand what is going on? We're going to unpack this verse through an outline that focuses on three things this morning. We're going to look at the context, we're going to look at the culprit, and then we're going to look at the cure. So let's dive in first by talking about the context. And the context deals with an unfaithful people and a faithful God. In looking at the near context, let's start with a wide-angle lens and look at the book of Malachi, and then we'll zoom in and look at the verses surrounding the uh, Malachi 2.16 that we're going to be looking at specifically. So the book of Malachi was the last book chronologically written. If you were here a few weeks ago, you might remember that I said that when the Hebrew uh, uh, scriptures were put together, they put the book of Second Chronicles last in the Hebrew Bible. But in the English versions, we put the book of Malachi last because it was the last book that was written. It was written around the time when Ezra and Nehemiah were exercising their ministry. It was written about 400 years before Jesus appeared on the scene. It was written when the people of Israel had returned from exile. They were back in the promised land but they were not yet fully restored to a right relationship with God. The name Malachi is simply is translated my messenger. Now there's some discussion and debate over whether on Malachi's birth certificate it actually listed the name Malachi like that was his birth name or whether he was just known by his title like he assumed the name Malachi because he was speaking on behalf of God. It doesn't really matter either way, whether it was his genuine birth name or his title, because he was fulfilling the function of one, speaking the words of God to God's people. And here was the message of the book of Malachi. The message of the book of Malachi was, God has proven himself faithful to you. He's brought you back into the land out of exile. He's restored you to a place of prominence. But you, those people who are back in the land, are not returning the favor. Though God was faithful to you, you are being faithless to God. And we can see that illustrated in two examples through the book of Malachi. How are the people being unfaithful to God? Well, here's the first example. Uh, the people were offering blemished animals as sacrifices. Uh, Malachi chapter 1, verses 11 to 14, here's what it says. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations and in every place, incense will be offered to my name in a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this you bring as an offering. Shall I accept this from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I'm a great king, says the Lord of hosts. 
My name will be feared among the nations. Okay, you see what's going on? So the people are back in the land, and they prove their connection to the Lord by sacrificing animals out of their flock to the Lord. And you remember in the Old Testament, they were supposed to give an unblemished male offspring of their flock to the Lord. But the people were in agriculture sales, and they were selling these livestock for food, and not a lot of people want to buy lame, underweight cattle. And so the people were like, you know what, we can maximize our profit margin by keeping the good cattle, go to the market, and we're going to send the lame or the blind or the sick cow to get sacrificed in the temple. And so like, here, God, here's my leftover offering. Here's the stuff I don't really want. What does that reveal about our heart? We don't trust that the Lord is our provider. We don't trust that the Lord is our sustainer. We have to fend for ourselves by depriving the Lord to keep for ourselves what we think we need. Here's the second example of Malachi chapter 3. Not only were the people giving bad animals to the Lord, in some instances they weren't giving anything at all. They were withholding their tithes and contributions. Verse 8 of Malachi chapter 3. Will you rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You're cursed with a curse for you're robbing me. The whole nation of you bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the window of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. So God's like, here's the deal. You're again trying to get what you think you need by not giving to the Lord what, it, what is his due. Here's a question about giving to the Lord sacrificially. Does the Lord need our money to keep the world moving? Like 0%, right? Like the world can keep going under the providential hand of God no matter what we do or don't do. So when we give our tithes or offerings to the Lord, what we're really saying is, I'm showing that I depend on you. I'm giving back to you a portion of what you've given to me. Not because I think that by giving you some money... I am going to merit some favor from you, but because I am expressing my dependence on you and my gratitude for you. My tithe is an expression of what God is worth. But the people in Malachi were like, we're going to fight for ourselves and we're going to keep everything. And God says, you are being faithless. And that word faithless actually dominates the near, culture, uh, near context as we kind of zoom in from the book of Malachi to the verses surrounding the key verse we're looking at this morning, the word faithless, but God in Hebrew is going to appear five times in these verses. The uh, near context is actually Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. Here's what it says. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why doesn't he? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Didn't he make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. And that leads us up to our key verse, which we're going to come back to. 
So what was happening? God was faithful. The people were faithless. They were faithless in their sacrifices. They were faithless in not giving their tithes. And now they're being faithless even closer to home in how they conduct themselves in their marriages. How were the Israelite people being faithless in their marriages? Well, let's let the historical context fill in those gaps for us. The book of Ezra, which I said earlier was written about the same time as the book of Malachi, tells us what was happening in the culture. Ezra chapter 9, starting in verse 1. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. Here's the people from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. Let's keep going. For they have taken some of their daughters to be their wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the land. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. Okay, here's what was going on. The people got back into the land, and they decided, we're back in the land. We want a new start in a new place. And so to get a new start in a new place, we're going to take new wives. And so they drop-kicked their present wives into the dustbin of history and started marrying new women. And who were they marrying? They were marrying women from the surrounding cultures. Now, what did God say in verse 15? He said, what does God desire? Godly offspring. What's, what, what's that about? By being married to people who are part of the covenant people of God, you would produce offspring who also worship the God who made covenant with you and your fathers and your grandfathers and et cetera, et cetera. But... If you start marrying these foreign women who worship other gods, well, missionary dating and missionary marriage doesn't usually work. Instead of influencing these people to worship your God, it's much more likely that they're going to pull you away from your faithfulness to the Lord, and you're going to start worshiping their gods. Uh, Dr. George Athis, who's director of research and an Old Testament lecturer at Moore Theological College in Australia, uh, suggests that there was a specific incident that happened that may be referred to in this passage. Uh, there's historical record that there was a priest in Israel, and his name was Manasseh, and he was about as awesome as King Manasseh, which was to say not at all awesome. And so this Hebrew priest Manasseh decided to kick out his first wife, divorce her, marry a new wife, and he found the daughter of the governor of Samaria, whose name was Sanballat, and he married that girl. He's like, new land, new start, new wife. Now, what was the problem? Quick geography lesson, right? So in Israel, there were like three tiers going north to south, right? There was Galilee in the north, there was Judah in the south, and there was Samaria in the middle. And remember that there was a lot of tension between the Jews on the north and the south and the Samaritans sandwiched in between, and Jesus was going to overcome that tension. But there was tension because the Samaritans were half Jewish, half not Jewish, and at the time of Malachi, the Samaritans were worshiping other gods. And so this dude, Sanballat, who was governor, the first part of his name, San, actually was seen the moon god. And so here's moon god-worshiping dude, and this priest comes and kicks out his first wife so that he can marry the daughter of the dude who leads worship of the moon god. And on a scale of one to fired up about that, God was about on that idea. Do you see the faithfulness problem? God was faithful to Israel, 
But Israelite men, including priests and leaders, were faithless to the wives of their youth. So that's the context. That leads us up to our verse. And the questions we need to ask as we approach Malachi 2, verse 16, are these. Who hates and who or what is being hated? Now here's what we're going to do. We're going to show you from the grammatical context who's hating and who or what is being hated. But I'm going to break every preaching rule to do this, okay? So when I took preaching classes in Bible college and seminary, here's what they said to me. They said, no, young men, when you preach to people, do not show your homework. Stand up there and tell them what the Bible says and proclaim it forcefully. But don't tell them why you got there. And I'm sitting there thinking, well, then you trust my voice instead of God's voice. And I'm not super interested if you believe what I believe because I believe it. I want you to believe what the Word of God says because God himself wrote it down in his Word. And so I'm going to nerd out on the Hebrew grammar here for just a minute, not because I think Hebrew grammar is the be-all that ends all, but because I want you to trust that God's Word is understandable and the grammatical context helps us get there. So what are we going to say? We're getting to the culprit. Who is the culprit in this scenario? And the culprit is unfaithful husbands. So God wants these men who are divorcing their first wives to marry new wives to look in the mirror and say, it's me, hi, I'm the problem, it's me. And I'm going to suggest that the way that happens is by rightly understanding how to translate this verse, Malachi 2.16. I'd like to suggest to you that the English Standard Version, the Christian Standard Bible, do a way better job of translating this verse. Here are better translations, and then we're going to backfill and show you how we get there. Here's what the English Standard says. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. And here's the Christian Standard uh, translation. If he hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel, he covers his garment with injustice, says the Lord of armies. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully and do not act treacherously. Okay, okay. Those are two very different translations, are they not? For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. If he hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel. Like, those aren't even in the same universe. So how in the world do we decide which option is correct? Well, I'm going to show you from the grammar, and we're going to follow a little trail, and the little crumbs that we're going to follow on our trail to figuring out how to get there are going to be three verbs, a necessary change, and the word and. And by looking at three verbs, a necessary change, and the word and, you're going to see how to rightly translate this verse. So let's talk about the three verbs. If we were just going to take the Hebrew and put it into English as it appears in the Hebrew Bible, and we were going to not try and smooth it out at all, we'd have three verbs that would read a little bit like this. Oh, by the way, Hebrew's fun. And so, so, so normally, like when you have something that you're reading, you read it left to right. But Hebrew, no, 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 not Hebrew. Hebrew, you read right to left. So that's why the English is going that way. So here's what it would be if we just read it word for word from the Hebrew. Because he hates, you must divorce, says Yahweh, the God of Israel. Okay, 
Should we just throw that in our English Bibles? Does that make any sense whatsoever at all? Because he hates, you must divorce, says Yahweh, the God of Israel. Yeah, what? Those are the three verbs. That's why we have a necessary change. We need to figure out how to put these words into an English translation that actually makes some sense. So how do we do that? Well, Hebrew is fun. You see up in, on, on the screen when you look at the Hebrew, there's a whole bunch of letters that are probably totally weird and don't mean much to you, but underneath those weird Hebrew letters that you pay a lot of money if you want to learn how to read, there's some dots and there's some T's and there's some dots above it. And, and here's the deal, here's the deal. Those dots and those T's and all of those little marks underneath the letters, those are the vowels. Because when the original Hebrew scriptures were written, they weren't written with any vowels. They were just a bunch of uh, consonants written together. Now, it's really hard to say a word if you don't have the vowels in the word because the vowels give us the vocalization of the word. And so people came along and they're like, if we're going to actually have this word make any sense, we got to put some vowels in it so that it makes sense. But you know how verse numbers are really helpful in reading scripture, but they're not inspired? It's kind of the same way with the vowels in the Hebrew. They're really helpful to understand it, but they weren't part of the original. And so if we're going to change something, you can change chapter numbers or verse numbers and not change the text of Scripture, right? Well, you can change the vowels in the Hebrew without changing the actual text that's been passed down throughout the generations. And so we have two options of changes we can make so that this, because he hates you must divorce, says, which doesn't make any sense at all, we can smooth it out in two different ways. And then I'm going to show you where the two different translations that we've seen actually come from. So here's first option. Just going to tell you up front, this is the bad option. Um, here's what they do. They take the word he hates, and they change the vowels underneath it, so that instead of he hates, the word hates becomes hate. It goes from a verb to a participle. It's like hating, and, and here's the deal with that. This is what you need to know. If they change it from he hates to just hating, anybody can be the hater. And so the people who are like, we want to change the hates to the hate, they're like, we need to now find a hater. And so they add the word I into the text. And so that Hebrew word ani, which is translated, you see up on the screen, I, this is how the King James Version, the New American Standard, this is what they do. They say, because God is speaking, says the Lord of Israel, the speaker must be the hater. And so we're going to say that the speaker, God, is the hater. And so we're going to change he hates to I hate and divorce is the thing hated. That's the first option. Here's the second option. The second option is instead of changing the vowels under the word hate, you can change the vowels under the word divorce. And so in the Hebrew, that divorce is imperative. You guys remember imperative from like second grade English class? You must do this. You have to do this. Go wash the dishes. Go make your bed. That's an imperative. And so imperative, you must divorce. But you can change the imperative into just a regular verb. And so you can change, by, by changing the vowels, you can go from you must divorce to 
he divorces. And so those are your two options. Here's what they lead us to. Option number one, I hate divorce, says Yahweh, the God of Israel. Option two, he who hates and divorces his wife, says Yahweh, the God of Israel. Different English translations go with different options. So how do we know know which one is right? Two ways. Two ways we know which one's right. Here's the first way. Remember how I said that you can change the vowels, but the consonants were original? If you change the consonants, you've changed the actual text of Scripture. Unless you have some good reason to change the consonants because there's some evidence that somebody copied the Word of God wrong while they were copying it throughout the generations, to just randomly add a word into Scripture is not super awesome, right? But the people who want it to be, I hate divorce, have to add that word I, and so they're actually adding consonants into the Hebrew, which is no bueno, we don't want to do that. Here's the other reason. Remember I said three, the three verbs, a necessary change, and the word and. And I promise you we're almost done with the weeds of grammar. But before I tell you this last thing, let's come up for air for just a second and let me tell you why this matters. Why does this matter at all? Here's why. Because if the text says, I hate divorce, says Yahweh, the God of Israel, it's a timeless principle applicable to all people in all situations throughout all history. And if God hates divorce in all times and all places, then what we need to tell people is for there, there's no good reason to ever get divorced. Don't even think about getting divorced because God hates it. But if what God hates is a specific incident in which specific people commit a specific violation, We want to understand exactly what God is saying is bad so that we don't do that. And we don't want to use I hate divorce as a hammer on people to whom this verse wasn't actually written and to whom it doesn't actually apply. Does that make sense? So, the word and. Have you guys taken like Spanish or French or any of those languages? A few of you, right, right? So if you've taken Spanish or French, do you guys remember like endings of, of words where they'd have plural or singular endings, they'd have male or female endings, they'd have first person, second person, third person? Hebrew has that too because Hebrew's fun. And so there's a rule in Hebrew that when the word and appears, the verbs that the and is connecting together all need to have the same gender, male, female, and the same ending, first person, singular, plural, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So, the word and appears in this section. And the and appears with the verb covers. And that word covers is third person, masculine, singular. And because he covers in the second part is third person, masculine, singular, The two verbs in the first part of the verse that are linked together with that word and must also be third person masculine singular, hates and divorces. That's the grammar rule. So God isn't the hater. The hater is the faithless man who's divorcing his wife. This actually then helps us understand what's going on in this passage Because the order of those verbs is the same order that these verbs were used back in Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 3. In Deuteronomy, Moses was telling the people, if you want to divorce your wife, 
here's the process you need to go through to divorce your wife. Here's the verse. If the latter man, that is a man who's gotten married, hates and divorce, hates his wife and writes her a certificate of divorce, so you see those two verbs in that same order, hates and divorces, and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, etc., etc. You want to divorce your wife? You hate your wife? Put a certificate of divorce in her hand and kick her out. Now, the word hates doesn't actually mean this intense emotional despising, though it could mean that. It means finding any reason to have disfavor with her. And so there was debate among Jewish scholars about how much and how intensely you had to hate your wife to divorce her. But by the time of Jesus, there was one school of thought that if your wife burned dinner, you could hate her because of that and you could divorce her. So it was super easy to find a reason to hate and divorce. So what was happening in the time of Malachi? The people in the time of Malachi wanted new wives. They were tired of their old wives. They wanted younger, prettier, what they thought were better wives. And so they put a certificate of divorce in the hands of their first wives, and they sent them away, and they said, see, see, we're following the law of Moses. We're doing everything Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 3 tells us to do, and now we're freed up because we got rid of you that we can marry the person we want to marry. And Malachi comes along speaking the words of God, and he says, God's got a problem with you doing that. Because when you do that, you're being faithless to your wives. God was faithful to his covenant to Israel. Israelite men, including priests, including leaders, including people who should have known better, were being unfaithful to the vows that they had made. What happens if you hate and divorce your wife? Do you see what it says here in the text? For the man who hates and divorces covers his garment with violence. If you divorced your wife in that culture, women were not allowed to work and earn money. Women at that time relied on the men in their lives to provide protection and provision and all the sustenance they needed to get through life. And so if the man kicked his wife out, she was left homeless, she was left helpless, she was left hopeless, And in many instances, she would either starve or have to resort to prostitution to make enough money to live. And God says, when you do that by forcing her to die or to sin, you've covered your garment with violence. The one you should cover with love and protection, you've covered with violence. And God's like, I'm so not good with that. So what's Malachi's cure? What's his point? What he's saying to the men is, be faithful. Do you see the last part of verse 16? So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Malachi's like, okay, here's what you need to do. Stop being unfaithful putzes. Stop divorcing your wife for silly reasons. Stop ruining her life because you want to and start honoring the marriage vows that you've made. And, and, and why? Because God is faithful to you, and so you should mimic the model of faithfulness that God has given to you. In fact, as Christians, we even ratchet this up another notch because Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 says, not only are we mimicking God's faithfulness to the nation of Israel, we're mimicking the faithfulness of Jesus Christ and the sacrificial love that he showed on the cross because our marriages picture the faithfulness of the gospel 
Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Marriage calls us to sacrificial love. How did Jesus love us? He loved us by giving up his life on the cross for us. He loved by serving. He loved by sacrificing. And Jesus didn't ditch us because a new and better offer came along. So hear this. This is not just God hates divorce, so you need to stay married no matter what. Malachi is giving his people an urgent challenge and exhortation to holistically honor their marriage vows. What do I mean when I say holistically honor your marriage vows? Here's what I mean. When we say God hates divorce, so you can't divorce, here's what we end up saying. We end up saying you're stuck with this person, so make the best of it no matter what. Because God hates divorce, he can become violent and abusive. He can throw you through a wall and leave you black and blue. But God hates divorce, so you need to stay. We end up saying it doesn't matter the vicious, angry words that are spoken. It doesn't matter the nagging and the incessant nitpicking that is happening. Now, I don't need to sacrificially stop doing that and love my spouse because you have to stay. God hates divorce. Here's what it means when we say God hates divorce so you can't ever go away. What it means is the other spouse can get addicted, can waste all your money, can sit on the couch unmotivated, stop working, eat 17 McDonald's meals every day and not do anything, and we're stuck in that no matter what. So put on a happy smile and make the best of it. And do you see, do you see, I want you to hear this, I want you to hear this. Do you see how the church of God, by mistranslating this verse, has used a verse that was calling people to covenant faithfulness, and instead of using it to call the person in the wrong to start living rightly, has used it as a hammer to tell the person who has been harmed and abused that they're stuck and they can't get help and they can't get relief and they just need to make the best of it. And that is dangerous manipulation of the word of God because we're going against the intention for which God wrote this passage. God wants us to honor our marriage vows not by forcing someone to stay, but by taking a look in the mirror and saying, am I doing everything to model the faithfulness and the sacrificial love of God that has been given by God in Jesus Christ throughout the generations? Full Bible context, last thing I want us to look at. Some of you might have asked the question, you might even be asking the question, is divorce always wrong? Does God hate and forbid divorce? The answer is no, and I'm going to give you three reasons for that, two of them right from the Scriptures. Here's the first proof that God does not always forbid, God does not always hate divorce. First reason is because God got divorced. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8, here's what it says. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I, that's God speaking, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. So when you tell the people who are like, God hates divorce, God hates divorce, what about God getting divorced? Here's their answer. Their answer to you is, well, yeah, God divorced Israel, but he was always planning to restore that relationship so that divorce wasn't really like what we're doing, so it's okay. Here's why that's terrible logic. If the act of divorce itself is a sin, then no future reconciliation can rectify the initial act, which is sinful. So if God chose to get divorced, which he did right here in the text, and there's other verses of the Old Testament that say the same thing, 
then the act of divorce itself must not be sinful because God can't sin. Here's the second reason. Uh, Divorce isn't wrong because, remember, in Ezra, the priests and the people were ditching their wives and marrying foreign wives? Like, how does God tell them to fix that? Here's what Ezra 10 tells us. And Shechaniah, the son of uh, Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra. We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land, but even now there's hope for Israel in spite of this. Okay, what's the hope for Israel in spite of how they've sinned? Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children according to the counsel of my, uh, of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God. And let it be done according to the law. Okay, okay, what? So they're like, what do we do about the fact that we just married these women we weren't supposed to marry? And the leaders say, here's the word of God, go divorce them. So God says, if you want to make right what you did wrong, you need to get out of these sinful marriages. So divorce these spouses that you never should have married in the first place. Why? Because you're corrupting the land by bringing in associations and close connections with idol worshipers. And to sever the idol worship in the land, you need to separate yourself from the idol worshiping spouses. That was how that was resolved in Malachi's day, but here's what the takeaway is for us. If God said that the solution in that specific instance was divorce, we cannot say that divorce is always wrong in every and any situation because God commanded it in that situation. I think we're better to say what Kevin DeYoung from the Gospel Coalition says. Every divorce is the result of sin, but not every divorce is sinful. Why? Because we are covenant-keeping people. And we should do everything in our power to keep our covenant holistically, to sacrificially serve and love our spouse. But there may come a time when the other party refuses to keep their part of the marriage covenant. And this is a matter for great discernment and great wisdom. It probably involves much help from godly, wise people in your life. It probably involves much prayer and much time and much attempt at reconciliation. It might even involve church discipline of the offending spouse. But there may come a time when the other person has so irreparably violated the marriage covenant that the covenant has ceased to exist. And just as God finally gave Israel a covenant of divorce because he was saying, you've divorced me in your heart, and so I'm just recognizing what you've already done, there may come a time when the covenant has been so irreparably dissolved that divorce is the final recognition of a separation that has already been done. My third proof for this, God got divorced, God commanded divorce, is church history. Throughout church history, this verse in Malachi has been interpreted not to mean that you can never get divorced for any reason, but it's been applied to punk husbands who needed to treat their wives better. One example, John Calvin. You don't get more conservative and more reformed than John Calvin as a Bible commentator. But here's what he said in his commentary on this verse. John Calvin is talking directly to abusive husbands in this verse who try to hide their bullying behavior. And here's what he said, and I quote, What else is this but to cover by a cloak your violence, or at least to excuse it? For you don't openly manifest it, but God is not deceived, nor can his eye be dazzled by such a disguise. Then your iniquity is covered by a cloak, but it's not hidden from God. No, it is thus doubled because you exercise your cruelty at home. It would be better for robbers to remain in the woods and there kill strangers than to entice guests to their houses and kill them there and to plunder them under the pretext of hospitality. But this is the way you're acting. 
For you destroy the bonds of marriage, and afterward you deceive your miserable wives. And yet you force them by your tyranny to continue living at your houses, and you torment them who might have enjoyed their freedom if divorce had been granted to them. Uh, Calvin's talking to these husbands like, listen, stop being abusive jerks and start honoring your marriage covenant. He said it's better to get killed by a stranger in the woods than to get invited into someone's home as a guest and there be deceived and destroyed. He said it's better to suffer from the hands of an enemy than to say you love someone and to force them to live with you while day by day by day you're destroying them. And Calvin's word, hear this, hear this, hear this. Calvin's word is not to the one who is being hurt. It's not to the victim. Calvin does not say, you need to love better. You need to stay longer. You need to try harder. No, Calvin doesn't address the victim. He addresses the perpetrator, and he says, how do you claim the name of Jesus when you don't live gospelly, faithfully like Jesus? That is what the passage of divorce is all about. God is not saying, I hate divorce so you can never do it. He's saying, I hate it when you use marriage as a pretext to harm and to hurt and to destroy. So check yourselves. There's healing and there's hope when we check ourselves and we live for the glory of God instead of for our own selfish desires. Thank you for listening to the Highland Sermon Podcast. If you would like to learn more about Highland Community Church, please feel free to visit our website, www.highlandchurchmn.com. Our website link is also available in the show notes of today's episode, along with links to our social media pages. Thank you for listening, and always remember this, you are loved.